so thankful you're here. This is uh, kind of a, an idea of Sam. Actually, we, Sam and I sat down at a district council last spring when Carrie was presenting down there, and we thought, man, this guy is really good. That's the first time I'd ever heard Carrie speak. I was at his church one time when I was on sabbatical last summer, um, but I wasn't impressed. But no, I'm only kidding. <laughs> I'm, only, I'm only kidding. I was very impressed. But you really got our attention at that conversation you gave us then, and so we said, let's do it here. And so Sam said, okay, let's, we'll make it a district thing. And uh, we're really glad that he made that decision. So thanks for being here. Let me just read Kerry's bio for you so you kind of know who he is. Uh, Kerry trained as a commercial flight instructor. He began working with young people, helping them navigate the course of life. He has found many people today desire answers to questions the church isn't answering. Connection seminars, like this one, are designed to train a new generation of church leaders to answer the biggest questions of life in a way that brings people to the giver of life. Carrie has earned two degrees in science and apologetics and is leading a thriving ministry and has led it for over 25 years. He currently leads Living Hope Church in Traverse City. So we are really glad and and happy to uh, invite Carrie to be here. And this is one of a few different seminars that maybe we'll be able to do in the the future. He'll tell us a little bit more about those. But first, before we do that, can we just give a round of applause to the people that made our dinner? Yeah, thank you so much, uh, John and Becca and uh, the team from here. We really appreciate the food, and uh, it was really, really good, so thank you. At this time, I'm just going to turn it over to Carrie. So let's just give Carrie a Northern Michigan round of applause, and thanks. Thank you, Pastor. So just, that's a little bit about me, but personally, my testimony goes further back. I was raised in mid-Michigan, the kind of Flint, Saginaw area, and when I was five, kind of the big watershed moment for my life was when my dad left home, and uh, I divorced my mom and left my sister and I and my mom to just kind of to try to do life, and that was a big switch for us. And my mom, for her whole life, just wanted to be a wife and a mother, and she was just kind of the sock hop generation and just wanted to do that thing. And then when my dad left, it tossed her. She just had an eighth-grade education, and she was tossed into the 70s without really having a clue. And they say, if you remember the 70s, you probably weren't there. So the her life was spiraling. She was looking for all kinds of things to uh, attach herself to, And I remember a little Buddha on the shelf, and she was into astrology, and she was just into all kinds of different things. And back then, uh, remember, those were the days when phones were attached to the house, and you had to get up and change the channel, right? The hardships that we had to deal with. And we did whatever the TV told us to do. My mom was mostly working, uh, cutting hair, waiting tables, and so we were kind of raised by the television, whatever the television would do. Uh, say what we would do for instance when the tv would say please stand by my sister and i would get up and we would stand by the television and then you only had about three and a half channels depending on if pbs came in and sunday morning those were three church services and meet the press and so that's what we would watch and i was watching a guy um, i can't think of his name right now but he was some tv preacher and he was saying hey you need to give your life to jesus even if you're watching my tv and I turned to my mom, who was sleeping off a hangover on the side here on the couch, and I said, hey, are you gonna, this guy on TV says you should give your life to Jesus. Are you going to give your life to Jesus or not? I was a fifth grader. And she opened one eye and thought, man, I need to get these kids into Sunday school. 
So she found a church the very next week that aligned with my dad's pickup time for his Sunday visit. And so while she was there, and we were in kids' church, the pastor was preaching about the gospel and how it wasn't the nails that held Jesus on the cross, but it was your sins that put him there. And the whole time my mom was saying, well, I would never do that. I'm a good person. I'm not going to nail Jesus to the cross. So she was justifying herself in her mind. And then at the end, the pastor gave the altar call, and she's still saying, yeah, I would never do that. And in that moment, she felt an invisible hammer in her hand. And she knew what it was. She felt it, and she couldn't put it down. It was stuck to her hand, and it was the Holy Spirit's way of telling her in a miracle that you have some culpability for that man on the cross. In other words, you need his grace. And so that day, she gave her life to Christ, and then everything radically changed in our home. You know, we were in church three times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and uh, it didn't matter, Super Bowl, Sunday night, God didn't care about the Super Bowl, you were going to be in church, right? It didn't matter if you were sick, you were going to church to get healed. This it just everything changed for us and then growing up in that from that time on i had to make a decision for myself because the biggest danger for church kids isn't that they're going to grow up to be heroin addicted axe murderers it's that they're going to grow up to be religious and so i went away to college to study aviation and about two years into that the lord made it known uh, to me that i needed him that I just couldn't do this life without him. And I had to make a decision to sink or swim with Christ. And so I made two decisions, best decisions of my life. And I didn't really make these decisions. I just came to the awareness of the truth that God was smarter than me and that he loved me and that he knew me better than I knew me and that I could trust him with my life. So from that time on, I said, whatever you want me to do, that's what I'll do. So I graduated from flight school, and, and a pastor from my hometown said, hey, I'm going to this church in Ypsilanti. Will you try out to be my youth pastor? And I thought, well, I guess it's not the devil that asked people to be youth pastors, so it must be God. So I gave up the flying career and, and went into ministry. And uh, at first I hated it. It was really hard because airplanes are easy. You pull back, houses get smaller. You push forward, houses get bigger, right? It's just simple. But people are hard, and ministry is difficult. So it took me a while, and God worked in me. I fell in love with the generation, and I just kept following the Lord, and that was uh, 29 years ago uh, in the process of that. And so continually working with uh, young people, doing camps and different things like that. I, I think when I retire from being a senior pastor, I'll go back to, to youth ministry and, because I just have a heart to help them understand how to do life because, yeah, I didn't have that navigation, right? And you know that between... Uh, now it's even younger. I mean, kids can mess up their lives at 11, 12, 13 years old and, and have that baggage. And I'd rather that they didn't have to contend with that. And so one of the best ways that I've found to help um, leverage the knowledge on how to do life is to train Christian leaders for the next generation that's coming, the questions that they're asking and how to help them. Because um, when when my parents were growing up, if you said from the pulpit, hey, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, that was good enough for a whole generation. It was good. You didn't have to have evidence for your faith. You just had that faith there, and it, and it was good enough for you. But these days now, if you bring Jesus or the Bible up in a classroom, uh, you've already went three or four steps ahead of where people are ready to give you. They're not going to accept that. Show me how the Bible is true. Show me how Jesus is God. Show me how all these things have to... Show me that there is any truth at all. 
And so the bus has to be backed up a little bit for the church in order for us to interface and be relevant for this generation. And so out of that idea and understanding where we're at in church leadership, the average pastor's age now is mid-50s, almost close to 60 for the average pastor. And so they're imprinted on a different generation. But pastors who still want to pastor should maintain relevance. They should have an understanding of the current generation that's coming up so that we can help reach them. Most people still are getting saved at a younger age. And so thank you for coming here tonight. And we're going to talk about a lot of different topics. And there's going to be topics at different levels on the shelf. So some of the cookies will be here, some will be here, some will be here. But I've given you all the notes, and you can write in that book. That's your book there to take. And think about these things. The goal isn't for you just to learn that, but to communicate it to the next generation in some form or fashion for those. And for those in my congregation to somehow give them an appetite for this information because sometimes they say, oh, well, why do I have to know this stuff? I already know Jesus is Lord. That's great, but your grandkids are struggling. They're wanting to know more reasons, some evidence. Give me something different to think about here because they're raised in Babylon, right? The culture has changed. Now there's so many different options for them spiritually to think about. We have to show them why Jesus is supreme among the other options that they have and so tonight's talk we talk about philosophy truth and logic for christian leaders and uh, we're going to help you think about these things in a lot of different ways so here's some things that we're contending with first the percentage of teenagers that identify as atheist is double that of the general population today so you're seeing the trend line of evangelicals going down in america and atheists going up And if the trends continue, there'll be more atheists in America than Christians. So this generation has double the amount of atheists than any other previous generation. Is the church ready to contend with that? Uh, Often when kids leave the church, so this is another thing that troubles me, is that students that are raised in church, uh, many of them, a large percentage of them, will leave the church after. They just don't see the relevance in it. To a large percentage of them, the reason they leave, they'll cite intellectual skepticism. I don't believe it's true. So you're finding three general reasons why people are leaving the church. The first is, it could be an intellectual. I don't believe Jesus is true or the Bible is true. Uh, It's going to be moral. I want to do what I want to do. Or emotional. I was hurt and blame God for it. Sometimes it's a combo platter. Of all three. 83% of teenagers believe that moral truth is relative. And that's a big stat. So here's my first question to you. Why did Jesus come to earth? Not a trick question. To save sinners? Okay. What's that? Save the world, good. Seek and save the lost, good. Yeah, so all of those are true. And then I have the verse there where Jesus tells him he's on trial for his life before Pilate, which to me is one of the most fascinating moments in the scriptures. Where Jesus is there, he's coming from being tried by the high priest. So by the high priest, 
he's there and he, he makes this cryptic statement about the Son of Man coming on the clouds and the high priest tears his clothes. Well, the high priest knows the Old Testament. And he's referring to Daniel, the Son of Man in Daniel, that he is actually that which Daniel talked about. The high priest knew that, so that's blasphemy. He tears his clothes. Well, he goes to Pilate, now a Roman, and he doesn't reference anything in the Hebrew Old Testament. He simply starts talking philosophy. And, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, is that your idea, or is that someone else's idea? Now, notice how Jesus gets him to open up his presuppositions within his own questions. Because often behind a question is a whole group of presuppositions that people bring to that question. And so, is that your idea, or is that someone else's idea? And he says, and listen, I'm not a Jew here. And you can see the pressure of Pilate with the Jews and the Romans, and then you, there's a historical backstory as well that he's struggling with a friend of his that just got executed by the Romans, and he might be on the short list next. And so he's got all of these pressures that he's dealing with. And then Jesus said, and I don't know who else in the world can say this, the reason that I've come is to testify to the truth and everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Now that's a bold statement. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And then Pilate, now think of this. Pilate has a one-on-one interview with the king of the universe. Alone, as far as we know. How many times would you wish that God would just be there for the questioning for you? He had that opportunity. Every, you want to know the truth about anything, Pilate? I'm here. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And then Pilate hits the ejector seat and he asks this question, what is truth? Right? What is truth? He just kind of bails on the whole thing. Like he didn't want to go down that trail with Jesus. He somehow was looking for a way out. So what is truth? But the reason that Jesus came to the earth was to testify to the truth. Now, why is the truth important? Why do you think? Why does it matter? Yeah, the truth will set you free. And all of us need that freedom. We'll ask this question a little bit later. What is truth? And we'll give you the correct answer for that so that we can have a good foundation of this. But... Another good question would be, why would Christians want to study philosophy? He says, the reason I was born, I came to the world to testify the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. There was a lot of philosophy in Paul's day. What is philosophy? How would you even define it? Okay, how we think, that's certainly a part of it. Look at the word. Philo, philo. Philosophy. It's the study of wisdom. Wisdom's important to God. Sometimes in Christian circles, we think philosophy is bad. Well, if you think wisdom is bad, I guess, but God said that it was through wisdom that He created the world. If you look in the book of Proverbs, there, wisdom is calling out to us. Wisdom is saying, hey, follow me. This is the way to do life. So wisdom 
is very important. So philosophy is the study of wisdom. So in Christian circles, I don't want us to think that philosophy is bad. I want us to think that bad philosophy is bad. (laughs) Right? Not that philosophy is bad. So if one of your students wants to go into philosophy, say, that's awesome. Just make sure you keep it good philosophy. So look at a number of verses here. Colossians chapter 1. Should Christians study philosophy? So here's Paul writing. He says, I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for those in Laodicea. For all who have not met me personally, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart, united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of what? Wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I'm absent from them or from you in body, I'm present with you in spirit and delight to see how dis- disciplined you are and how firm you are in your faith. And I think that this should be our heart as generations come into our church and, and leave and go into their life. We don't want them deceived by fine-sounding arguments. And so many are. But we have to pre-equip them for those arguments. We can't just kick them into the world unequipped to handle that. Which is what we've done for so long. Oh, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. And then they go out into the world that knows nothing of the scriptures, but has fine-sounding arguments as to why you shouldn't believe that. And so we have to do better at equipping them. Paul said this, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you've been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive. That word means to cheat or to plunder from you. How? Through hollow and deceptive philosophies. Paul didn't say don't do philosophy. He said do it well. Have a good understanding of the truth and the true wisdom. Otherwise, you're going to be cheated and you're going to be plundered. He said, don't depend on philosophies which depend on the human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in him, Christ, dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Don't be cheated. Don't be plundered. And so when we talk about philosophy, here we have the philosophies of Paul's world. You had the classical Greek philosophy of Plato, which basically said our world's just a shadow of the real world. Then you had the Stoics. Reality is ultimately material and governed by a logos. We'll talk about that in a bit. A divine substance that pervades the cosmos, gives it its order and direction. Then you had the Epicureans. The gods took... Uh, They had no concern for human affairs. The universe was closed. It emerged from chance, collision of atoms. Pleasure with moderation was what gave them true meaning. Even today we have Epicurean festivals. Then there were the Gnostics. Salvation was gained through Hebrew tradition, faith in Christ, but not as God. It's kind of like the cult of today. They had secret knowledge. And so a lot of the New Testament was written in response to those wrong philosophies. Here are the big questions of philosophy. And for those of you who love to fill in blanks, here are some blanks. If I pass a blank and you will feel like you cannot sleep without that blank filled in, just raise your hand and remind me because I may skip over it. Here are big questions of philosophy. 
Question number one, the nature of human reality or ultimate reality. The nature of ultimate reality and that prefix there is meta. And we'll talk about this. It means over and above. Meta means over and above or about. Metaphysics. So if you took a philosophy class, one of the first things that they would talk to you about is metaphysics. And that's answering the question, what is ultimate reality? Well, does God have something to say about ultimate reality? Yeah, he does. If you get that right, if you get your metaphysics right, everything else will flow out of that. And we'll parse that out from a Christian worldview tonight. Uh, Epistemology, that's a $10 word. And that's the study of knowledge. Epistemology, episteme, means to know. How do you know that you know something? That's what that branch of philosophy is. And then the nature of sound thinking, so laws of logic and such. We'll touch on each of these tonight. Let's start with a little bit of logic. Look at these church signs. Is reason the greatest enemy that faith has? Is reason the devil's greatest whore? (laughs) Don't put that on your church sign. I mean, somebody was having a bad day. You know what I mean? I, I, I don't know. Right. Now, I come from a Pentecostal tradition, and... I know that we really emphasize faith. Now, what we've done wrongly is that we've pitted reason and faith against each other. And what we've said is, the more evidence you have for your faith, or the more reason you have to believe, the less faith you have. And that's not a biblical picture of faith. Logic, and I've heard preachers say this, that Some things about following God are just not logical. They require faith. Anybody ever heard a statement like that? It's just not logical. You can't just rely on logic to follow God. You have to have faith. And they pit those two together. Now, in the purest sense of the word, that's just false. And when you say that to... I have a seminar on science and religion as well and how those two interact. And I have a science teacher in in my... Uh, church that I'm trying to help correct her language because she always says, well, this is what science says and this is what faith says. Well, ultimately, they're trying to pursue truth, so they should interface pretty well. And in this case, when we say, well, following God isn't logical. Really? Is reason, are reason and faith opposed to each other? Let's look at this. In the beginning, John 1 was the what? Yeah, it was the word. The Greek word there is logos. It's the very word we get our word logic from. In the beginning was the logic. So here's John, who's trying to introduce to the Greek world a sense of who Jesus is. Now keep in mind, they don't have a big theology for this in the Greek language. So he's looking for some kind of word that would encapsulate a mediator between the divine world and the material world. And that word in Greek is logos. And he said, that's who Jesus is. 
Jesus is the mediator between the divine world and the material world. In the beginning was the word. God spoke, and the divine spoke the material into existence. And the way he did it is through Christ, Colossians 1. Right? Through Christ, all things were created by him and for him. He was the divine logos. So if logic is antithetical to faith, how is Jesus the divine logic? Right? It doesn't make sense. It's better to say, I I wrote this out carefully in this paragraph because I've I've had to think this through. It's better to say, instead of saying, well, faith just isn't reasonable or logical. You have to have faith. And the two are opposite. It's not true. It's better to say this, preachers. Our natural selves cannot apprehend the fullness of who God is or how he ordered the universe. So in our natural selves, we don't have the intuitive capability to understand how God is and how he ordered the universe because our, our senses are fallen. So we're not going to naturally apprehend those things. We have skewed lenses on. That's what the flesh does. It distorts things. Reason is a God-given gift that, when rightly used, helps us discern truth from error in the world. However, our reasoning faculties are fallen and tainted by the sin nature. And God has woven into the fabric of the universe, another blank here, paradoxes that are counterintuitive to our sin nature. It's not illogical to trust Christ, but it is counterintuitive to our sin nature to trust Christ because our sin nature wants to be all about us. But true life is found by following Christ. And so here are some paradoxes. If you want to live, Jesus said you have to do what? You got to die. If you want to receive, you have to what? If you want to be great, you should become... Servant of all, none of these concepts are illogical. They are perfectly in line with how God designed the world in accordance with his character and nature. So they're not illogical, they're just counterintuitive to our sin nature. Does that make sense? So we should never again say faith and logic are opposites. No, no, no. It's our sin nature that's opposite to how God ordered the world. And Jesus, the divine Logos, is the mediator between God's world and our world. And then the way he said to live is the best way to live. Three basic laws of logic. The first law is the law of identity. In large logical parlance, and again, so keep in mind this. That philosophers are really good at taking simple, compl- simple ideas and making them complex. But at the root of them, they're fairly simple. The law of identity simply says that a thing is identical to itself. A equals A. Two, the law of non-contradiction says A is not non-A. Okay, again, common sense. Grandma knew this. She just didn't articulate it this way. In the case of a proposition, it cannot be true or false in the same sense. So if I came up to Pastor Sam, I said, Oh, Pastor Sam, it's awesome. I heard your wife is expecting. 
And if at the same time she said yes and you said no, I wouldn't walk away saying, oh, that makes sense. Right? I would think, I don't know if she told him. Right? There's some disconnect there because she can't be pregnant and not pregnant at the same time. It breaks the law of non-contradiction. She either is or she isn't. And then the third law is like that. It's the law of the excluded middle. You make a proposition. It's either true or false. It cannot be both. Now, you take these are the main three laws of logic. These are just laws of sound reasoning. You take these three laws, and none of them break any <laughs> uh, law of Christianity. In fact, they say, philosophers will say, that the laws of sound reasoning emanate from the very character and nature of God himself. If you think about this, can you think of any doctrine of Christianity that breaks any of these laws? How about this one? The Trinity. Is God one? Or is he three? What do you think? Is he one? Or is he three? Does that violate the law of non-contradiction? Pregnant, not pregnant, same thing. Is the Trinity illogical? Think about that. You're sitting around the cafeteria. You say, I'm not a Christian. The Trinity is illogical. God can't be three and one at the same time. How do you handle that? How do you tell your grandkids to handle that when they experience a Muslim on their campus? Muslim, Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, all of them throw away the Trinity. It's illogical. How do you handle that? Okay, here's the answer. It is. It does not violate any law of logic. It does not violate the law of contradiction because the law of contradiction says something can't be true and false in the same sense. And the Trinity is different. It's one what and three who's. It's one God, but three persons. So it's, there's different senses in which it's true. God, in one sense, is a unified whole. And God, in another sense, is three persons. One what and three who's. So it's not breaking any law of contradiction, any law of logic, because it is different senses in which it's true. So you could say to me, wow, you look pregnant. Now, not pregnant with a baby, but pregnant with an idea. So I'm pregnant in a different sense than pregnant with a baby. So I can be pregnant and not pregnant at the same time, right? I'm pregnant with an idea or with passion. Same thing with the Trinity. It's not illogical to believe in the Trinity because it's one what and three who's. And I think Christian leaders should preach the Trinity more for three reasons. One, it answers the age-old human question about unity in diversity. So you go back all the way to the ancients and the Greeks. So they had four essences, earth, air, water, and fire, right? It's where the band gets the name. 
earth, air, water, and fire. And they had these four essences. And so they had a diversity of what the world was made of, ultimate reality. But they were always looking for the fifth essence. The fifth essence they called the quint. That's fifth. Quintessence. To unify the four. If you studied physics, often they're looking for what's called the unified field theory. Because there are four forces that make things move. The weak nuclear force, strong nuclear force, and electromagnetism, and then the outlier's gravity. So there are these four main forces, but they're looking for one that unifies all four. They're looking for the secret of the universe that says, how can we unify our diversities? And so you take that experiment, and our founding fathers were steeped in Greek thought in America, and they tried to found a nation based on that. In fact, if you pulled out a coin, it would have a Latin phrase on it. What would be the phrase? Yeah, what was it? Yeah, e pluribus, what does that mean? Yeah, out of the many, the diversity, one, the unity. They're trying to create a nation based on the idea of how can we as different people live as one. And we're still trying to figure that out 250 years later. We're still trying to figure out racial problems. We're still trying to figure out how can we come together as one nation. We're trying to solve one of the fundamental problems of humanity, and that is how can we as different people, and you think about this even as a marriage, so you have two different people from two different backgrounds, two different, uh, hopefully two different families, and they're trying to come together as one. Unity in diversity. How can humanity solve that problem? Now watch. We live in a cause and effect universe. There's causes and effects. And there's no way, if we want the desired effect, unity and diversity among the human family, there's no way to get that if the cause doesn't demonstrate unity and diversity. And only in Christianity do we have that in the first cause. Unity and diversity in the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in perfect love and in perfect unity. And it is the perfect example of how to live out what love really looks like. And so you have these inter-Trinitarian dialogues within the scriptures that give us a great picture of what the ultimate cause of the universe, God, is like, and that gives us hope in the church. Listen, I think the body of Christ is the best shot at showing the world at what different people from different cultures can look like when they love together. It's the best shot at it. Why? Because we have it in the first cause. You never see members of the Trinity arguing with each other. They're always in unity. In fact, the secret is each one wants to honor the others. So you have Jesus, the Son, who shows up and says, Listen, I'm not here on my behalf, but on whose behalf? Yeah, I'm here because God the Father sent me. And I'm only doing, I'm not going rogue here. I'm only doing what I see the Father doing. I'm only saying what I hear the Father saying. I'm here so that you can see the Father. And then you see the father who says, man, I'm so pleased with this son, right, at his baptism. Look, at, I'm so pleased. And a couple times he says this. The Holy Spirit comes down, a voice from heaven, this is my son, I'm so pleased. And then on the Mount of Transfiguration, right, he's there and he's got his three disciples. And he's being transformed and the disciples are just amazed. And Peter opens his mouth and, and he's the one disciple that has the unique distinction of being interrupted by each person of the Trinity. 
And so he, he's there. I want to live here and build a house, and this is awesome. This is great. And God the Father says, hey, shut up. This is my son. I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So you see the father pointing to the son. And then you see the son saying, man, my job's done here after the cross. I'm out of here. And they're like, no, don't go. Where are you going? He says, hey, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm sending who? The Holy Spirit. And he's going to testify everything that I... So you have the Holy Spirit pointing us to Christ. You see the Father pointing us to Christ. You see Jesus pointing to both of them. The secret to unity and diversity is true love that says, look how awesome these people are. And if we lived our lives and our marriages like that, instead of looking for my way, but we said, how can I bring out the highest and best out of you? We'd show the world what love is really like. But we can do it because we have that in our first cause. We can be the effect because we have unity and diversity in the first cause. Secondly, I think it's important because without the Trinity, there's no salvation. So when you're dialoguing with other religions, in fact, this makes Christianity unique. There's no other faith system in the world that has the Trinity as its deity. And that's a good indication. Because there's a thousand angles at which you can lean, but there's only one angle at which you can be straight. So when Christianity claims exclusivity, that's a positive. Any religion that says, oh, just pick your road, all of them lead to heaven, you know that's wrong. That's illogical. That violates the law of non-contradiction because they all have different things to say about the big questions. They say, well, all religions are basically the same. No, no, they're basically different. They're superficially the same, but they differ on big things like the character and nature of God, the character and nature of man, the character and nature of salvation, the biggest problem mankind faces, heaven, hell. Those big deals, they, they differ on all those things, and they can't all be right. So when Jesus claimed exclusivity, I'll get to you in a second, when he claimed exclusivity, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, he was making a very logical statement. Yes. Yeah, great question. How much time do you have? <laughs> yeah, so I think you look at the evidence. And so when I look at the life of Christ, he stands supreme above every other faith leader in the history of the world. And I'm going to show you that in a second. But let me start here. First, Jesus shows up on the earth and he fulfills a prophetic address. In other words, if I went to your house, you give me your address, I would find you there. And so what happened for thousands of years is prophets wrote down what the, prof, what the Messiah would be like, where he would be born, how he would die, thousands of years before Jesus showed up, things that you couldn't control. I mean, could you control where you were born? No, you can't. And who you were born to, you couldn't control that either. And so the prophets start writing this down, and Jesus shows up. And if you read the book of Matthew, you'll see him writing to a Jewish audience, often saying, Jesus did this, as the prophets foretold. And there'll be a little footnote in there, and you can read back hundreds of years in Isaiah and in the Psalms that were prophesied in detail what the Messiah would be like. So Jesus shows up, and there were other messianic figures that showed up, but Jesus fulfilled the prophetic address. Second, Jesus, when he showed up, demonstrated mastery over nature. So, uh, when the guy walks on water, you know, he's got credibility in my eyes. I'm, I'm going to listen to him. 
And so you have Jesus demonstrating mastery over nature. For instance, here's the scene. Here's Peter, and he's fished all night. Then Jesus, this happened twice to him, said, hey, uh, why, don't you, why don't you cast your net over there? And Peter says, well, listen, I'm the pro fisherman here, and I fished all night. I didn't catch anything. But because you say so, I'll do it. Throws the net in. Jesus says to the fish, now, and they all come into the net. And then Peter, in that moment, you read this early on in his calling, he then gets on his knees and he says, depart from me, I'm an unclean man. And so it's in that moment where Jesus demonstrates power over nature in the field that Peter is master, he now bends the knee to Christ as Savior. So he demonstrates, and, and then, you know, they're in the boat, and it's stormy, and they're afraid, and I love this scene, and Jesus is sleeping in the boat. They wake him up, don't you care if we perish? Jesus, have you ever had just an awesome nap, and then your kids wake you up, you know, too early? Do you wake up happy? No, you're agitated, and so this is Jesus with an edge. So I would not have wanted to be the storm in this moment. And Jesus rebukes the storm. Peace, be still. Now, if you read the scriptures, a fascinating statement. So Jesus, first of all, the disciples are freaking out. We're going to drown. Then it is dead calm. Peace, be still. And then the Bible says, and the disciples were terrified. Why? Because uh, the winds and the waves were powerful. But we're in a boat with someone who's more powerful than the wind and the waves. And we can't escape from this guy. So he demonstrates power over nature. Then you find him living a perfect life. So number three. So which of us in this room has ever lived a perfect life? And who would know best but your family, right? And so your family says, no. I mean, if you're on trial for your life, and in order for you to live, you have to be perfect. You know, we're all headed for the gallows. Because we can fool other people, but all it takes is your little brother to say, no, here's why. Jesus stood in front of his accusers, in front of all those people, and said, which of you can prove me of any wrong? Okay, that's a big deal. Then he goes to the cross, so there's a sacrifice for our sins, and then he rose from the grave. I challenge you to find any religious leader that stacks all of those together. You won't find it. Jesus reigns supreme. How do you know that's true? Every time I try to back away from Jesus, I back into an empty tomb. And that's a seminar for another night that we'll do. But that's the short answer to that question. Let's unpack that even a little bit more. So let's talk about a meta-narrative. Metaphysics. What is ultimate reality? Neil Postman says this about our age. He says, we are facing then a series of interconnected delusions, beginning with the belief that technological innovation is the same thing as human progress, which is lifted to the delusion that our sufferings and failures are caused by inadequate information, which is linked in turn to the most serious delusion of all, that it is possible to live without a loom to weave our lives into fabric And that is to say, without a transcendent narrative. The word transcendent means a narrative that's above us or beyond us. So we've disconnected this generation from the transcendent. And then when doing that, there's no loom to weave the various strands of their life. That's why they're so disconnected. 
even the most connected generation to any information they want on the planet is the most lonely generation because there's nothing to make it make sense for them. We've given them a story that tells them their lives are purposeless, meaningless. So what is a meta-narrative? It is the story above the story. Neil Postman again, he says, In the end, science does not provide the answers most of us require. It's the story of our origins and our end. To say the least, is unsatisfactory. To the question, how did it all begin? Science answered, probably by an accident. To the question, how, did, how will it all end? Science answers, probably by an accident. And this is a big quote. And to many people, the accidental life is not worth living. You're seeing a rise in suicide and drug addiction among these kids. You're just an accident. Well, life is painful. I don't want to be an accident anymore. We've got to tell them the, uh, there's a better story. You see this in the Star Wars saga. You see the villain and the hero, the protagonist and the antagonist, and he's trying to get her on his side. And the way for him to do that is to scare her into it. Now, what is scary for this generation? You know, it used to be when you watched a horror film, it was, it was you were scared because, wow, you had personal threat to your life. And it, people in horror films make the absolute dumbest decisions in the world, right? So there's a noise in the basement. She's babysitting by herself. And what does she do? She goes down in the basement. That's a dumb idea. Well, anyway... In the Star Wars saga, this is what he said, and this is what is being told to this generation is one of the scariest things they're facing. They're being told, you came from nothing. You're not part of the story. You're nothing. Is that biblical? Is that true? No, it's not true. We have to, that's a meta narrative, an overarching story. So here's ultimate reality from a biblical worldview. First of all, I kind of divided into two boxes. Now, you need to know that these two boxes are not to scale. I just do it for simplicity's sake. First, you have the uncreated eternal box. There are things in the world that are uncreated and eternal. What fits in the uncreated and eternal box? Yeah, yeah, good. Ten points for you. God fits in the uncreated and eternal box. Now, there is also a created realm, and this is divided into material and immaterial. Material, immaterial. So the material world would consist of what? Yeah, chairs, these are material. Good, what else? Not everything. Yeah, so things that are made out of the periodic table of elements. This is the material world. Well, is there a world beyond that as well? Yeah, there is. There's an immaterial world. This is the world the Bible describes angels, demons, souls, minds. These are immaterial things, but they do exist, and they are created. So this is ultimate reality. There's an uncreated uh, and eternal world. God inhabits that, but there's also a material created world and an immaterial created world. Big question. What box does Jesus fit in? This is another unique thing about Christianity. 
Where would Jesus fit? He would be in the uncreated box. Was he material? So he's in the material world? Yeah, if you think about Jesus, he spans both boxes. He's uncreated and eternal, but in his incarnate self, he's material and immaterial. He has two centers of self-consciousness, a divine and human. So when people say, how could God be hungry, right, Because or thirsty? Jesus said, I thirst. How could God be thirsty? Well, he was thirsty in his human sense, not in his God sense. Why was it important that Jesus spanned both boxes? What's that? Yeah, he could relate to us, but even beyond that. Yeah, we could relate to him even beyond that. What do you celebrate at communion? Right. Without him being in the material world, there'd be no body or blood. And what good did the body and blood do for us? It saved us. Exactly right. But watch this. The only way he could save us is by first being in this box. Let me explain it this way. Here's a question. Why is it that hell is forever? If I sin temporally, why am I punished eternally? Question the kids ask nowadays. Here's why. Because sin is not measured just in the dimension of time at which you act in it. Sin is measured by the level of authority of the person that you sinned against. The value and authority of the person that you sinned against. I'll put it this way. So in the spring of the year, in Michigan, the state bird returns. It is the mosquito, right? And that mosquito alights on your arm. What do you do with it? Do you say, go away now? Now, how many of you have murdered mosquitoes before? Okay, yeah, so you're guilty. Okay, so you murdered that mosquito. You slapped it. Anybody been arrested for that? No. The same action, slap the mosquito, no problem. Slap my wife, now we have a problem. The action is identical. What's different is the value and authority of the the one I've sinned against. Cop comes to the door, I slap him. Now we've just gotten more trouble. Why? Same action. It's the value and authority by which I've sinned against that person that causes me more. If I'm in the judge's chambers, I slap him, now we got more issues. Same action that I did with the mosquito. But there's a hierarchy of value in the world. And God is at the top. How valuable is God? How much authority does God have? What's that? How much? Yeah, ultimate authority. He has infinite authority. So when we sin against God, we owe an infinite debt. Who can pay an infinite debt unless they're in the uncreated box? You see the Jehovah's Witnesses, and this is my argument when they come to my door. 
I say, listen, you believe in Jesus, but if he's not infinite and uncreated, you're still in your sin because you owe God an infinite debt. And even though your Jesus may have went to the cross, if he's not infinite, the check bounced. It's insufficient funds. And if you have a metaphysic that says Jesus is both uncreated and eternal, and he was in our world incarnate so that he could die, this then provides the atonement for our sins. And it's the only way to get it done. You see the genius of God, and you also see the necessity of the Trinity. Say, why is the Trinity important? Is heaven important to you? This is a Christian metaphysic. And it separates Christianity from every other religion. So when they come knocking on my door, which they do, this is the conversation we have. And I draw those two boxes. And I ask them, what box does Jesus fit in? And they say he fits into the created box. I say, hold on a second. Not according to your Bible, because your Bible says that in the beginning was the word, the word was a God. They mistranslate that, but they don't mistranslate verse 3, which says, through him all things were created. Not one thing was created apart from Christ. Hold on a second. If all things that were created were created through Christ, how could Jesus be a created being? Because you can't be in the created box and create yourself. You have to be in the uncreated box to create anything. And a lot of times that's when they say, we got to go. But I want a stone in their shoe, and I never let them leave without saying, I want you to know this. Unless your God is infinite and gave a sacrifice for you, you're still in your sins. But I want you to know that Jesus paid the price for you. And he could do it. Only he could do it. Because he was both infinite and uncreated and material in the incarnation. So when we preach this this Christmas, it's more than a babe in a manger. It is an all-sufficient sacrifice for our infinite debt that we owe God. Only in Christianity. That's why Jesus is supreme. Let's have any questions or comments on this. It kind of ends our first session. Any thoughts? Yes. No. No, he's uncreated. Yep, he's uncreated. Eternally existing. I know you think, how could I, how could I wrap my mind around that? You can't, because you, you have a finite mind. So you can't. It's like trying to think of a one-ended stick. It's just impossible to do that. But think of this. Something in the universe has to be eternal. Because the universe can't create itself. Well, I think there's a big bang, but I think I know who banged it. Yeah, yeah, so you think of the universe, and we go back to this diagram. Something has to account for all this stuff, right? Even if you don't believe in this, which it's hard not to believe in a, in a soul and a mind and actually think about this, because what are you using if you don't have a soul and a mind? If this is all time, space, and matter... What accounts for the existence of the universe? If the universe consists of time, space, and matter. Well, you say, well, the universe created itself. Hold on a second. Before there was time, space, and matter, 
How could time, space, and matter create itself? This is before there was any of that. There has to be something outside of time, space, and matter that is eternal, personal, powerful, and wise. And that sounds like God to me. It's just, this is logic. It's illogical to believe otherwise because material things can never be responsible for themselves. For creating themselves. Only the immaterial has the ability to do that. But Any other thoughts? Questions? Good questions, by the way. Is your head hurting yet? We have two more, two more sessions to go. Okay, I'm going to give you a five-minute break, and then we'll come back here, and we'll talk about truth. What is truth? This is a big question. They say we're living in a post-truth era. Well, you can't really live in a post-truth era. It's just truth isn't prized very much, but truth is still existing. But what is truth? How would you describe that? Pilate asks you, or you're saying, no, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And the kid says to you in your youth group, what's truth? How do you answer that? <laughs> okay, you, you could. Yeah, it's circular, but you could say that. Absolute, unchanging. Okay. Factual. Truth is facts. What are facts? <laughs> okay. That's circular too. Okay. Anybody over here? What is truth? There is a realm of philosophy that answers this question. Here's the best definition I've found of truth. It's called the correspondence theory. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. No. Reality is reality. It just makes it corresponding to whatever reality is. Any statement that corresponds with what is real is true. Well, that's the study of epistemology. We're going, to talk, we're going to unpack that for a little bit. Because, why is this so important? Here's the most dangerous thing in the world. The most dangerous thing in the world is a lie that you believe is true. A lie you believe is true. So we're all from northern Michigan and we have strange customs up here. In a few weeks the water will freeze and people will say oh there's still fish down there and they'll poke holes in the ice and they'll build little houses they'll sit there staring down that hole and then every spring people will fall in snowmobiles ice shanties cars why does that happen because what they thought was true wasn't true. They believed it a lie, but they thought it was the truth. This ice will hold me. The most dangerous thing in the world is a lie you believe is true because you act on what you think is true. 
But if what you think is true is actually false, falsehoods don't correspond with reality. And reality will not adjust to what you think is true if it's false. And so if you think the ice is thick enough, but it's really not, you're going to fall through. Now, if in your mind you think, that ice isn't thick enough, you're not going to go out. But if you see a guy out there, surely I can do it. We act on things we think are true. This is why it can be dangerous if they're not true. Think of famous last words. We can make it. I didn't think it was loaded. Right? So, these are things we thought were true. This won't hurt. Hold my beer. Those are all famous last words. Because we think this is true when it's really not. And so that's why when Jesus says, I've come to testify to the truth, man, we better listen to him. Because he's, he knows about reality. He knows how life should be lived. That's why he could say, you've got a thief that's going to steal, kill, and destroy. Or you have me, I've come to bring life and it to the fullest. And when I came to faith, that was my big decision. I realized that Jesus is the way to life and it to the fullest. But so many are deceived into thinking that God is holding out on them or somehow Christianity isn't the good life. So they run, in, they run after falsehoods, and we'll talk about that in the media. But let's parse out some truth myths that, uh, as Christian leaders, we need to be able to articulate. Number one, number one myth, there's no such thing as absolute truth. It's all relative. I'm not sure if I have this on here or not. <clears throat> What's necessarily true for you isn't necessarily true for me. Truth is relative. Have you heard that statement before? You have your truth, I have my truth. Well, hold on a second. What do you mean by truth? If you mean truth that corresponds to reality, uh, we don't each have our own reality. We're all living in the same reality. How do you turn this around? Well, it's funny about humans. We want relative truth when it comes to moral things but we demand truth in every other area of our life. If you're married to someone who constantly lies to you, you don't say, oh, it makes me love you all the more. When you go to the pharmacy and get your medication, do you want what's on the bottle to represent the reality of what's in the bottle? Do you want the label to be true? Yeah. Do you want the pharmacist to read your prescription and then put something different in the bottle? We, we want truth. When we witness a courtroom scene, we want the truth. So we demand truth in every other area, but when it comes to areas of moral questions, ah, you have your truth, I have my truth. Why? Because we want to be able to play God in those areas. And we're bad gods. We're great sons and daughters, but we're bad gods. Number two, well, number one, let's unpack this. There's no such thing as absolute truth. The best way to deal with this is just to turn it on itself. When somebody says, hey, there's no such thing as absolute truth, I say, is what you said true? Is that true? There's no such thing as absolute truth? Yeah, that's right. Hold on, if what you said was absolutely true, then what you said was false. Do you see how that kind of beats itself up? 
it's self-defeating. When somebody says, no such thing as absolute truth. Truly? And it, it, what's it doing? It's sitting on a branch and sawing the branch it's sitting on. It's a self-defeating statement. Number two, what's true for you isn't necessarily true for me. What happens here is they, they confuse a truth claim for a preference claim. So let's just establish some truth here in the room. What is the best flavor of ice cream? Hold on a second. I heard chocolate and vanilla. Can those both be true? <laughs> what else? Best flavor of ice cream. We got a cookie dough over here. What else? Any, just those three? Oh, we got a moose track. Kind of leaning toward the moose track. What's that? Blue moon. Mint chocolate chip. That would be my daughter's favorite. And I think the reason she likes it is that I don't. And she knows I won't be stealing any. I hate that. Yes. What's what I'm saying is that when you confuse a preference claim with a truth claim, this is where we can get this. So when we talk about ice cream, we're talking about preferences, not moral truth claims. But when I confuse the two, you get bumper stickers like this. Don't like abortion? Don't have one. If you prefer not to have one, that's fine. If I prefer to have one, that's fine. You like chocolate? Have chocolate. You like vanilla? Have vanilla. I like Rocky Road? I'm going to have Rocky Road. What's the fuss? Well, the fuss is killing a baby is a moral truth claim. It's not an area where we can prefer. You see, there are sacred areas, and then there are areas where God has given us a realm of preferences. So in humanity, who we are as humans, we've been given a whole bunch of stewardship. We have great creative capacities, mental, emotional capacities, far beyond all the animal world. And we have things that we can create, like ice cream flavors. But then there's the realm of the sacred. Life, marriage, sexuality, worship. These are all things that God says, this is my area here. This is my territory here, right? This is my tree don't touch it. You have this garden, steward it. This is my tree, don't touch it. Sacred things, sexuality, life, marriage, worship. He defines what is right and wrong in those areas. We don't have the jurisdiction to prefer in those realms. Only he does. Put this bumper sticker on don't like slavery, don't own one. See how far you get along before your car is defaced. Same principle as the abortion bumper sticker, different issue. We've settled the slavery issue. We think that's morally abhorrent. The abortion issue we're still working through. Same concept. Don't like slavery, don't have one. Don't own one. You see the contradiction kind of emerge there. You can't prefer, you can't own another human being because humans are sacred. So you have these areas of sacredness that you can't prefer. You can't have preferences there. Eh, 
I'll choose this brand of sexuality and this kind of marriage like you're choosing an ice cream flavor. No, that's out of your jurisdiction. And when humans start tinkering with the sacred, things go bad. Things break. That's what sin is. It's a violation of our purpose. Number three. What is true depends on how you were raised. This came to light. I was watching uh, an interview, and there was a kind of a young up-and-coming celebrity, I guess you would say, and she was being asked about her views on gay marriage. And she said, you know, I've just, I kind of have a hard time with it, and, you know, I'm sorry, that's just how I was raised. And that's the worst answer. Why? Because truth doesn't depend on how you were raised. Truth doesn't depend on location. If you say this, well, you know, I was, I was raised by axe murderers, so I guess I'm an axe murderer. I'm sorry, that's how I was raised. That doesn't excuse it. Right? And truth doesn't depend on how you were raised. You could be raised right, you could be raised wrong. So don't let how you were raised be an excuse for what you believe. I mean, there's a lot of examples we could cite from our past and our upbringing that we think, mm, I'm not sure that's so good. Truth <laughs> depends on what's real, not how I was raised. How do I know what's real? The Bible's a good start. The scriptures are descriptions of reality. Some people, another way to phrase this is the reason you're a Christian is because you're raised in America. If you were raised in Saudi Arabia, you'd be Muslim. Okay, that may be true, but the truth claims of Christ don't de- aren't determined by location. And I also think it's funny because Jesus wasn't American or Arabic. He was Jewish. You say, oh, Christianity is a Western religion. No, it's actually a Middle Eastern religion that's dying in the West and growing like crazy in Africa and China. <laughs> so it's a global thing. Jesus came for the whole world. And when Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, it wasn't just for Americans. It was for everybody. And Jesus wasn't true because he was raised that way or he was in a certain location. Truth doesn't depend on location. Two plus two is four wherever you go. How about this one? Number four, you can believe what you want as long as you're sincere. Well, the truth is you can be sincerely wrong. Truth doesn't depend on your sincerity level. Any thoughts on those big four truth myths? Any questions about those? Because we're going to shift now to another big, big issue in our world today that we deal with the bad fruit of these ideas, but we don't often understand the root of these ideas. And the root of so much of what we're dealing with in our cultural issues, it could be abortion, it could be sexuality, it could be marriage, it could be any of those cultural issues, come down to this next topic, and that is the power of essence. What is essence? 
an essential quality is a quality about something that if we were to change it, it changes the thing. It changes the quality of, not just the quality of the thing, it changes the thing entirely. It becomes a different thing. The law of identity, A equals A. If you change an essential quality, A is no longer A. It's something else. It's B or C or D. That's how we define what an essential quality is. You can have accidental qualities. Those are qualities of which if they're changed, the thing still stays the same thing essentially. Just a different brand of it. For instance, some of you 20 years ago had a different kind of hair. Either more of it, different color. I know, I know. But it didn't change you. It didn't change who you were. It didn't change you, the person. So hair type color is an accidental property of who you are. It's not an essential property of who you are. And if you think about life, so from a perspective of a pilot, so for for me, when I went through flight school, they said, listen, we're going to give you the keys to this airplane, but it has what's called a flight envelope. A flight envelope is a set of parameters by which if you stay in the envelope, things generally will go well for you. If you are outside of the envelope, we have no guarantees. In fact, we'll mostly guarantee things will go bad for you. For instance, on every airspeed indicator in an airplane, there are colors. There's a white stripe, there's a green stripe, there's a yellow stripe, red stripe, some blues, some reds. Those all mean something. They define the flight envelope for you. In other words, they say, if you go this fast, if you're in the green arc, things are going to go well. If you go below the white arc, you will fall out of the sky. So you need to go at least this fast. But if you go too fast, you hit the red line, wings fall off. And that's aerodynamically inefficient. You have just passed the flight envelope, design envelope for this plane. Same thing with helicopters. Helicopters have all kinds of crazy things that are going on. You have these wings that are rotating at high speed and the aircraft is moving forward through the wind at the same time. So you have an advancing blade through the wind and then one that's retreating away from the wind. So one is going way faster into the wind than the other one is. You understand that? One is going... And what happens is this one produces a lot more lift and this one doesn't. And if you go too fast, you have what's called a retreating blade stall where this start, stops producing lift altogether and the helicopter flips upside down. That's also aerodynamically inefficient. There's a, that's why helicopters will always go slower than fixed-wing aircraft, because of that dynamic. So, if I wanted to destroy you, all I have to do is to get you to live your life outside of God's envelope for you. You see, you have essential qualities, and you are designed certain ways to live in this world. And all I need to do, because I can't force you. So if I'm the enemy of your soul, 
I don't have power to force you. So you can't say, well, the devil made me do it, right? Because he doesn't make us do anything. All he has to do is deceive us into living our lives outside the envelope. And we'll destroy ourselves. Because there is a certain design envelope for who we are. And God gives us rules, not so he limits our fun. He's giving us rules so our wings don't fall off. And if you're in ministry, a large portion of your job is helping people who have lived outside the envelope and you're trying to help them get it back in by God's grace because they kept smashing it. It's because they don't understand their essence. They don't understand who they were made to be, what they were made to be. In fact, they thought they could determine their own essence, but they can't. So the blanks here, if I'm going to steal from you, kill and destroy you, I have to get you to live contrary to your, here's the blanks, essential nature, which is you are an image bearer and a child of God. If I were to ask you, do humans have an essential nature? Do they have anything about them that's essential, that if I were to change it, they'd stop being human? How would you answer that? What would be the essential parts of being human? What makes you a human? Okay. Animals have flesh. Okay, so we, we have a sense of morality that's unique to humanity, for sure. Uh, we have a soul that is unique to humanity in the sense, the qualitative sense. I think that there are some animals that have souls, but I think that humans have a soul that is far advanced beyond uh, animals. I mean, have you ever seen a dog steal a sandwich off the counter, right? And then you caught him. They're, th- they're processing at a rudimentary level, right? So we have a sense of morality. We have a soul that's far and away beyond the animal world. What else makes you essentially human? Yes. Okay, good. That's our sense of morality. We have a conscience. Yeah, we're made in God's image. I think you start there. So here we are, we're arguing in our society about human rights, but we never argue about what it means to be human. <laughs> Where does humanity start? When do you start being human? Human. If you're made in God's image, that's where you start. Now, in that image means that there's something about us that's like God. Some things about us that are like God. If we're made in His image... And here we go back to creative capacities, a sense of morality. We have uh, a drive to worship. These are things that are unique to God, that are like God. Now, here's the big question. And this is what has been tripping people up for a long, long time, all the way since the garden. The really big question that tossed Adam and Eve here. It came to prominence in America in the 60s. The hippie generation gave John Paul Sartre. And here's what the hippies latched on to. This lie here that existence precedes essence. Now this seems complicated, 
but it is huge. So we're going to spend a little bit of time here. Basically what he's saying is that humanity doesn't possess any inherent nature. So we create our own values and virtues. We create our own essence. It becomes what we say it is. So when it comes to humanity, our, our genders an essential quality about who we are as humans. Are our genders essential to who we are as humans? Is that an essential quality? How, and how would you justify that? If you say, yep, our genders are essential to who we are. If you change how we're, how we're made in our genders, we're not human. That's a big topic for today, right? God said he created them male and female. It's a part of our essential nature. You think about all the... And I have a whole seminar on human sexuality that we can unpack this. But our sexuality mirrors God's character and nature. You think about God's character and nature. First, humans are designed to, and I can't do the whole seminar right now, humans are designed to procreate exclusively. And if you've ever been cheated on or been through an adulterous situation, you know how that burns you. Well, the reason it burns you is because you were designed for exclusivity. Why? Because God is exclusive. He demands worship. And that's a part of us. So, God is sacred, and, the pro- and we are sacred as image bearers, so the process to make other humans is also sacred. God is unique, and he is, um, he is one. God is exclusive. Worship no other God. Our sexuality says, I've designed you for exclusive. If you think about this, how many other animals do you know that procreate face-to-face? So we were designed for bonding, and we were designed for complementary pairs, male and female is the only way to make other humans. So we have unity and diversity even in our sexuality that reflects the unity and diversity of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Father, Mother, Child. That's part of our image. His image. But if I think I can determine my own essence, I can throw all that out the window. John Paul Sartre said, existence precedes essence is that true do these lift off oh they're wired in are these booby trapped oh good nothing's going to blow up okay so this is a birdhouse and I know it's complex in colors but let's just for sake of simplicity, call it one color. What color would you say that is? A light green? Okay, let's call it a green. So this is a green birdhouse. So it has, philosophers would say, the property of greenness. Normal people would say it's green. But it has the property of greenness. Now, did the green property of greenness exist before the birdhouse existed or after? Did the essence come before the existence or the existence come before the 
property, the essential property of greenness? That is a huge question. That's the root of all the fruit that we're dealing with in these social issues. How would you answer that? Did greenness come first or did the birdhouse come first? What's that? Greenness? Birdhouse? Did the greenness exist before the birdhouse existed? You think so? Where? Where did it? No, before it was in the can of paint. Because even when they made the can of paint, if this was the can of paint, did the greenness in the can of paint exist before the can of paint? Or after the can of paint existed? Did the existence of the can of paint come first? Or did the property of greenness come first? Say that again. Yeah, 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 that's it. The property of greenness on this birdhouse existed in the mind of the creator before it existed here. And even in the can of paint. They're creating the paint and somebody said, this is going to be green. And they thought of it before it existed materially. Sartre says, no, 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 no. You existed as a human and by virtue of your consciousness, you can determine your essence. You can determine whether you're made in the image of God or not. You can determine your sexuality or not. You can determine your gender or not. You can determine your essential qualities because you exist. But that's not true in anything that's created. Anything that's created, the essence was thought of in the mind of the artist first, and then it came out in its existence second. If you've ever created anything, if I ask you to draw something right now, it has to exist in your mind before it comes out on the paper. And you see this in Christianity. Here's God talking to Jeremiah. Before I formed you, I what? I knew you. Before I formed you, I knew your essential qualities. And I knew, Jeremiah, you were called to be a prophet. So before you showed up on the planet, God had you in mind. And he had your essential properties in mind. Therefore, what determines essence is the creator. I can't determine my gender because that was predetermined by my creator. I can't determine what marriage is because that was determined by... I can't determine what human life is. That's determined by the Creator. I can't determine what God to worship, true God to worship, because that's determined by the real God. All these sacred things are determined before we show up. So essence precedes existence. So when somebody asks you a question about one of these cultural issues, the first question I ask is, do you think essence comes before existence or existence comes before essence? And then, then watch them think about that. Because in most churches, that question is never raised. We never ask that. But from a biblical worldview, before I formed you, I knew you. God had you in mind, and he had your essential nature. He had your flight envelope designed. And if you want to fly well, stay in the envelope. If you want wings to fall off, try it without it. And I spent years of my life trying to live outside that envelope. And it just doesn't work well. It's not how we were designed. Every 
thing that God calls sin, he's basically saying it's not what you were made for. It's not what you were made for. We have things that are essentially useful for certain things. For instance, what are lungs made for? What's that? Yeah, breathing what? Yeah, air. Water's not good. Yeah, you're outside your envelope, right? Things are going to crash. Every year, kids grow up and they're exposed to cigarettes, let's say, marijuana now, and they inhale it. Now, what's odd to me is that you sit around a campfire and smoke blows in your face. You move or you make weird statements about rabbits and things. You, you, do, you don't just say, oh, this is great. This is what my lungs were made for. And for, for I remember you know, that first time trying a cigarette, my body didn't say, oh, where's this been all my life? This is so awesome. No, what's the, what's the natural response? Yeah, exactly. Your body starts convulsing. And what is it saying to you? Pull up. You're outside the envelope. Your essential quality for lungs is not to process smoke. This will kill you. Now, pick your issue. If it's a problem, you're violating the essential purpose of that thing. And whenever, you, and I don't know if I wrote this down, but you need to write this down. I don't know if it's in your packet or not. Whenever you violate purpose, you diminish capacity. That's why Jesus could so confidently say, I'm here to give you life to the fullest. Because I know how you're built. And I know how creation works. And I know how you're supposed to interface with all of that. And if you follow me, you will enhance capacity, not diminish capacity. Any violation of purpose will diminish capacity. We know this intuitively with our automobiles. It has certain holes in it. For certain fluids. And you just can't say, well, I don't care what designed for i'm going to put what i want where i want you can but you'll diminish capacity you want to put antifreeze where the gas goes you can you have a certain sovereignty as a human being to sin you can do it but you'll diminish capacity i mean think of how many of our health problems are because we're violating purpose A lot of the leading causes of death are preventable. The wages of sin is death. What is sin? It's a violation of purpose. Who gets to determine that? The creator. It's in the mind of the creator before it's in us in existence. This is the power of essence. Does marriage have an essential quality? What, is, what are the essential qualities of marriage, human marriage? Where if we change them, it's not marriage. Covenant. Okay, good. How many of you have ever been to a wedding? How many of you have been to a wedding that wasn't human? Yeah, you've, every wedding you've been to, now you take this for granted, Every wedding you've been to has been humans. Why don't animals make covenants? They're not made in the image of a covenant-making God. 
we make covenants because we are. So covenant is an essential part of it. What's another essential part of it? Good. Exclusivity. Forsake all others. Right? Why? Because God is exclusive. Yeah, yeah. Male and female is an essential property of marriage. So when we say, well, listen, these are two guys here, and they say, hey, we're married. Okay, um, depending on, you know, I don't want to be rude to them as humans. They're still humans made in the image of God, but they're living outside the envelope of what marriage is meant to be. You can't call that marriage. Pastor, do you believe in same-sex marriage? Do you think essence precedes existence or existence precedes essence? What do you mean? Exactly. Most people just want a soundbite. They don't want to think about these. I think that God created us with essential qualities. And marriage has an essential quality to it. Covenant-based, exclusive, male and female. Then we can go from there. Right? But it, it, yeah, essence precedes existence in the mind of the creator. This is why... A substitute creation story like evolution that can eliminate a creator is so fought over. Because when we're talking about creator, we're talking about who determines essence. If we're essentially just a product of random processes, we can determine essence. But if you're not, if you're actually a piece of art, then the artist determines essence. For sure. It's a big identity play. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, there's no objective morality. There's just kind of social morality, social convention. Should I burp at the table or not? You know, different cultures will have different things to say about this. Not necessarily ultimately right or wrong. But, yeah, we, we can determine essence because we're sentient. We have the ability to think about these things. Well, the irony is is that a non-thinking process can't produce thoughts. And evolution doesn't think. So I have a whole seminar on that too. So we can't give them all to you tonight. Human life have essential nature. Image bearer has inherent value. This talks about the abortion issue, gender issues. So there's a lot having to do with what it means to understand our essence and the essential natures of these things. Thoughts or questions before we have one more session? Well, there's so many clues to God and it's a multifaceted discussion. So I pick up the discussion where they're at um, and I try to back up the bus as far back as we can go to the existence of a material universe. What is the best explanation to the existence of a material universe? It can't be the material universe because material universes don't create themselves. Things just don't pop into existence out of nothing. Never have, never will. Something outside the material world has to be responsible for it logically. That's called the cosmological argument for God's existence. And if you want to study it further... But there's, there's so many good classical arguments for God's existence. The moral argument, 
if there's anything right or wrong in the universe, God has to exist because there has to be some arbiter of what is right or wrong. Laws don't come into existence by themselves. If there are moral laws, there has to be a moral lawgiver. The fine-tuning argument for God, we can go down the list. Um, those are probably my three favorite. And then, then I work toward Jesus. Once we can get that, hey, it's plausible God exists, then I make him contend with an empty tomb, historically an empty tomb, um, and see how they process that. Also, I, I'm developing an argument from meaning because we're, we're facing a crisis of meaning where this, these kids don't think that they are. In, in Britain right now, 80% of, 89% of young people don't think their life has any purpose. Okay, but nobody grows up wanting that. Nobody grows up thinking, I want my life to have no purpose. I want a menial job, a mundane pursuits, and, and passionless passions. This is what I want. No, we all want to matter, and we all want life to have meaning. This is a clue that we were created by a purposeful God because we have that. So I think we can tap into who we are as image bearers that are undeniable. We do have a sense of right and wrong. Where does that come from? Because molecules don't care. If all we are are just molecules in motion, molecules don't care. And what about free will? There's a great argument from free will. Molecules, if all we are is chemistry, chemistry doesn't think. You put your detergent in the water and it does its thing. There's never a time when you put the detergent in the water when it says, you know what, I don't want to clean today. Chemicals do what they do. And they do it repetitively according to natural law. Um, how do you get a will out of that? Some atheists will deny that we have free will. Which is hard for them because they have to use their will to do it. Right? It becomes very unsensible to be an atheist. A materialist that says all there is is material. It's hard to get a will, it's hard to get morality, and it's hard to get consciousness out of all of that. Because chemicals don't think. Chemicals don't think about right and wrong. And chemicals um, don't make decisions. I think the best explanation for our consciousness, for our free will, and for our sense of morality is a conscious mind that is moral based on his character and nature and is personal. In other words, he acts and he has a will. But that's the best explanation for it. And then here's another fun one just to, just to take home with you. <laughs> if I were to cut your arm off, just imagine your arm, just look at it. Pretend it's severed at the elbow. And I ask you to raise your hand. Could you do it? No, you couldn't. Why? Because it's just meat at that point, right? It's just meat on the table. But if I ask you to raise your hand right now, could you? Yeah, raise your hand. Yeah, so what you just did is your mind supervened over the meat. The immaterial takes preeminence over the material. And in God's world, the immaterial divine mind is the best explanation for how we even have a material world. 
He spoke it into existence. But also there's the world of abstract, of numbers and things. But numbers can't cause things to happen. Only minds cause things to happen. If the world is just material, just meat, (laughs) it's not going to cause anything beyond. It can't cause a mind. The material can't supervene over the mind, and the abstract can't supervene over the mind. The mind is preeminent in the universe. And the best explanation for that is that there's a divine mind in the universe. That's not even in the seminar. That's free. Okay. All right. Take, <laughs> yeah, take a break. Give me five minutes here, and then we'll come back, and we'll finish up. Let's talk about the media and philosophy. We live in a media-saturated world. And so much of what is fed into our minds about reality comes through the avenues of the media. There are three levels of philosophy. There's theoretical philosophy, and we've touched on some of this tonight. Plato, Aristotle, Nietzsche, Kant, these are theoretical physicists. And they have the grand ideas, and we should be able to merchandise in those ideas. But then the second level is the level of the arts. Art is ideas and emotion captured in some kind of form. When you look at a piece of art, it's an idea often evoking an emotion captured in a form. And art is a wonderful thing. God is an artist. The scriptures say about the spirit, he adorned the heavens. So therefore, we are artists. You have never been to a museum that was filled with pieces designed by reptiles. <laughs> okay. I think elephants have some pretty well-developed souls, though. They're not image bearers, but they, are, they do think. I've seen them in Africa, and you're wondering, is he thinking, I must crush you? Because <laughs> we don't want to get too close. The arts, Beatles, Spielberg, advertisers go right down the list. There's so many artists, and I think it's a great thing. And we really, as Christians, should be leaders in these areas. I wrote a book called God and Your Talent, How to Do Great Art for the Glory of God, if you want to Amazon that. Then there's the level, the third level is where we most live. The talk show, the living room, the locker room, the bedroom. This is where philosophies are lived out. Formulated theoretically. Communicated through the arts. Lived out in our lives. So that middle area of the arts is where is a hinge point, often for society. I don't remember who said it. I think it was a Scottish philosopher who said, if you let me write the songs of a nation, I don't care who writes its laws. Because he knows the power of the arts to direct the culture. Why are entertainment matters? One, it has potential to lower our discernment. Think about this. Amusement. When you want to be entertained, you want to be amused. What does that word literally mean? What does it mean to muse? M-U-S-E. It's the word in 
amusement. What does it mean to muse? Anybody know? No? Yeah, to think. When you're musing on something, you're thinking about something. So if you look at the word amusement, A is the prefix for non or no. So literally, when you're being amused, you are non-thinking. Isn't that interesting? That's why it's so easy to lower your discernment when you're being entertained. It used to frustrate me as a youth pastor. Kids would be down here worshiping. Oh, God is so awesome. Yeah, we love you. This is great. And then after youth service, they go to a movie and watch something that profaned everything they just worshiped. Why? Because they're not thinking. They just want to be amused. And, and overall, I think this generation is overly entertained and underly challenged. So much amusement right there. Right when you were kids and you were acting up in the store, your parents had different ways of compliance for you. It wasn't hand you a screen. Here, be entertained. What was their method of compliance? <laughs> Step outside. Yeah, yeah. Let's come into the bathroom for a second. Yeah, they had, they had different compliance measures. And I think that was good for us because we recognize that there are reasons to behave apart from my entertainment. When we say, just be entertained, we've created a culture that craves amusement and they just non-think all the time. It's hard for them to develop discernment when they're non-thinking. Uh, we see that often media has shown to be addictive. Hours and hours a day of screen time, though. My wife is a social worker, and she works in adoptive homes. Often adoptive homes that are struggling. In fact, she generally doesn't get a call if things are going well. And you know what the number one issue is often? Cell phone use. They gave the kid a cell phone way too soon. And it was a portal to all manner of hell into his life. Way too soon. It becomes very addictive. We know that social media is thriving on hormonal hits and dopamine hits in your mind when you get those likes and when you get those sensations it is actually addictive to your brain and they know that and so they created it so that it has likes and and so that it has little dings and so it has little buzzers and so that you can count your friends and you can that's all part of they knew the psychology of it and yet we're giving these kids 12 13 younger all access to everything the internet has. And I always tell people the internet's like Detroit. It has some good spots and it has some bad spots. And until you're ready to let your kid go to Detroit by themselves, don't let them have access to the internet by themselves. They will be fine. Most of us in this room grew up without cell phones. Look, and, and we're Okay. We're doing okay, are we? Kids can do it too. I'm a firm believer of raising analog kids before you raise digital kids. Let them understand their mind. 
my daughter's 15, and she's getting into algebra stuff, math, and, and now they have this thing, well, once they get to algebra, they can use a calculator. Okay, I get it for some of the functions, but not for addition. Oh, hold on, what is that? Oh, let me get my calculator. Oh, so you're not getting your calculator out. Use your brain. You can do addition in your head. Oh, we become so dependent, so dependent on someone else's creativity. It can become very addictive. Number three, the arts have great power to steer the imagination, bypass the intellect, and go straight to the heart. They can direct our loves. They can direct our ideas. They can direct our emotions. That's why we go to movies. We want that to happen. We want to go on that story. We want to go on that ride with them. We want our emotions to go up and down. If we don't, we say the more movie was boring. There's power in that. The arts can desensitize us to toxic experiences, ideas, and images. So there's a desensitization aspect there as well. There are lies that are coming to us through the arts, like there are many ways to heaven. Pursuing sexual gratification apart from covenant marriage will bring you fulfillment. Because these are my feelings, God must have created me this way. I'm on page six, I think. I'm worthy of love and valuable because my looks and my performance. If I pursue pleasure in my life as the ultimate goal, I will live a meaningful life. These are lies that are perpetuated by the media all the time. And I'm going to give you some clues how they do this. How do false ideas come? Think about this influence here. Who's the guy on the right? Yeah, James Dean. How many don't know who this guy is? Raise your hand. You don't know who this guy is. James Dean, one of the biggest movie stars, Rebel Without a Cause. And in the movies, when he used Ace Combs, the sales went through the roof. Why? Influence. The arts have power to influence. Let's look at another example. Sales of Ray-Ban sunglasses went up 40% after Top Gun was released. Anybody have them? Have a set? Bomber jackets. Did you go out and buy yourself an F-14? I would have if I could have. Just one movie. 40% sales. Yellow Camaro sales up 10%. Why? Transformers. Beretta paid a quarter of a million dollars to be an American sniper. Why would a company pay a quarter of a million dollars to be featured in a movie? Influence. Die Hard 2 put Glock on the map in the United States. It wasn't an advertising campaign. It was a movie. This is a long quote by a a writer and a director here. He says this, As a writer and a director, my primary objective is to manipulate you. Think about that. 
He says, I'm only successful if I can get you to cry, to laugh, to ache, and to be thrilled exactly when I want you to. All the years I've trained, all the dialogue I write, every camera angle I choose, and all the music I used is designed for one reason only, to manipulate your emotions. Now, don't get me wrong. Manipulation is not necessarily bad. I like getting caught up in a good story as much as the next guy. All I'm saying is when you step into the theater or you turn on the tube, be aware that somebody is trying to manipulate you. Then decide if that's the picture or the show you want to be manipulated by. If it is, fine. If not, pass, because you will not go away unaffected. Let me repeat, you will not go away unaffected. We've gotten too good at what we do. Two thousand eighteen Super Bowl. Some people don't like to watch the Super Bowl, they like the advertisements. This creative. In the last Super Bowl, two thousand eighteen, five million dollars it cost you for a thirty second spot. You want to run a Super Bowl ad? Awesome, do it. Create it and then come up with the five million dollars to run it. Now, do the math on that. How much is that per second? I think I have it in there. How much is it? Yeah, 160, you need a calculator. Yeah, me too. $168,000 a second. Wouldn't you like that salary? Boom. You'd have a hard time spending that, wouldn't you? You'd get another second, $168,000. That's faster than you could write a check. Why spend that money? Why do they do it? What's the return? Yeah, influence. Now, these people aren't dumb. They think that in 30 seconds, they can influence enough people to get their return back on their $5 million. Now, I ask you this. If they can influence that many people in 30 seconds, what can they do in two and a half hour movie? Right? You've seen shifts in how the culture views different issues in our world to a large degree. It's because of the philosophy that has been brought to them through their heroes in music and film and now YouTube. Ideas, emotion, fixed in a form has the ability to influence. If it can influence comb sales, jean sales, sunglasses sales it can influence how i think about the world it has the power to do that now it has the power to desensitize us on the bottom of page seven here i've given you a study i'm just going to give you the pull out here that the researchers found and they did this not on students but on parents and what they did is they showed films with a certain sexual content and they asked the parent, what age is this appropriate for? And the more they showed them sexual content, the lower the age they said was appropriate. In other words, the parents were desensitized by watching it. Now I want to blow your mind here. Look at page 8. Not sure where I'm at here. I'm going to read to you the Hayes Code. 
Now, the Hayes Code was something that was implemented in the motion picture industry. And it was something that was volunteered because so you find the 1920s, you have this new industry of the motion picture industry kind of coming on the scene. And you see people saying, wow, this is powerful. We can seize this. The communist says we can see this. The Nazis said we can do this. There are lots of people that thought this is a big tool of propaganda here that we could use. And in America, we had stars that kind of were polar opposites. So on one side, you had Shirley Temple and her good ship, what? Lollipop. And then you had Mae West. Come and see me sometime. So you had the sensual and the innocent And they were both competing for time. And the lawmakers in Congress looked at Mae West and thought, I'm not sure this is going to be good for the public. I don't think it's going to be good influence on our nation. So we should regulate this industry. And the motion picture industry said, whoa, 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 no. We will come up with a code that will help us not violate the sensibilities of our nation. We don't want the government to do it, so we'll self-regulate. And so this is a portion of the Hayes Code. I'm going to read some of this with you, and you tell me if anything has changed. So here, here it is, first bullet point. No picture shall be produced that will lower the moral standards of those who see it. Hence, the sympathy of the audience should never be thrown to the side of crime, wrongdoing, evil, or sin. <laughs> Next. Law natural or human, shall not be ridiculed, nor shall sympathy be created for its violation. Nudity and suggestive dances are prohibited. The ridicule of religion was forbidden, and ministers of religion were not to be represented as comic characters or villains. This was the code of the motion picture industry. The depiction of illegal drug use was forbidden, as well as the use of liquor when not required by the plot or for proper characterization. Scenes of passion were not to be introduced when not essential to the plot. Excessive and lustful kissing was to be avoided along with any other treatment that might stimulate the lower and baser elements. Remember Ricky and Lucy? They didn't even sleep in the same bed. Right? And they were married! It'd be nice to see a married couple every once in a while. You know what I mean? But now, that's, yeah, We've lowered our standards. How about this one? The flag of the United States was to be treated respectfully, as were the people and the history of other nations. This is just a portion of the, of the Hayes Code. So I ask you this. Have things changed? They have. And you've seen <laughs> us degenerate as a culture because ideas and emotion fixed in form have brought us right along there. When did this change? When we got the rating system. PG, PG-13, all that. Which, incidentally, was run by parents, which this study says can be desensitized. That's why when you watch a movie now and you think, well, this is PG, what? This should be R, right? They're letting them say this, right? You get, you get uh, ambushed by movies now that you think, because that's human nature. If our, what's that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Every year our church goes on a media fast. We do about 10 days where we ask our church just to go off all media. And, man, you'd think that I ask them to uh, cut off a limb, but uh, it's a very healthy spiritual experience. 
you know what happens is when they come back to it, they realize that, man, I'm watching filth. Their discernment meter works back up. <laughs> at the end, at the end of when we break the fast, yeah, it's Super Bowl Sunday. What does Philippians 4, 8 say? Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure, lovely, admirable. Think about these things that are excellent, worthy of praise. Now watch. <clears throat> Again, thinking about from the context of getting you to live outside your envelope. If I can get you to believe something different about your past, I can control your decisions in the present. If I can get you to believe a certain set of ideas surrounding the big questions of life, origin, where you came from, what gives your life meaning, what's right and wrong, and what is your ultimate destiny, I can change how you behave today. I want our kids to behave. Well, there's a sin nature that is looking for an ally out there somewhere. And the entertainment industry is, is full of it to cater to that nature. And if I can get you to believe falsehoods about those things, I can get you to purposely, you will purposely make decisions outside the envelope. Think of, This is the power of history. This is not a trick question. What is that? Okay, good. Thank you. Not hard, right? What is that? Yeah, it's an 11. Now, who decided that? Who decided what that was? I did, right, because essence precedes existence in the mind of the creator. Since I created that, I'm telling you that's an 11. But, Somewhere in your history, someone said, when you see that, think one. All it is is a vertical line, right? At its purest sense, it's just a vertical line. Somewhere in your history, somebody taught you one. Now, if you're in the Roman numeral system still, yeah, that's two. But generally speaking, that's 11. Now, if I write this, what is it? Nobody said 911. Why? Somewhere in your history, this had a different meaning. And all I have to do is change what you believe about history, and I can change how you respond in the present. This is an emergency number now, or it's a date. Pre-911 and pre-emergency, the answer would have been, that's 911, Right? All it takes is just me or someone in your past to say, this is who you are, this is where you came from, this is what your life's all about, and I can change how you respond in the present. And the media is really good at that. Answering those big questions for you, where you came from, what gives your life meaning, what is moral, and what is the final destiny of mankind. The media is taking those ideas of theoretical philosophy and bringing them at the level of the arts we take them in through our amusement, non-thinking, and then we make actions based on that in the present. How do I get you to change your deeply held beliefs? 
Kids raised in a Christian home, leave, don't live Christianly. Why? What changed? How can I get you to change your deeply held beliefs? beliefs? How can I subvert? And it can go one way or another. It doesn't have to be from bad to good. It can be from good to bad. It can be, it goes both ways. But if I want to get you to think differently, I need to subvert your current thinking. And I want to show you how this happens in the realm of the arts. Here's the recipe for subverting your beliefs. First, I enter your story. I get you to identify with me somehow. Then I change your story, and I tell it back to you. I get you to identify with your story. I identify with your story. I enter your world, change your world, tweak it a little bit, and then I tell it back to you differently. And I'm subverting your thinking. Here's some examples. First, what I do is I get you to enter the story. We connect stories by gaining, and this is the blank on page 9, gaining sympathy or attachment for the hero of the story. You gain sympathy for the protagonist. You identify with them. So as I'm writing a story, let's say it's a movie script, the first thing I need to do is find out how I can get you to sympathize with the hero, to pull for them, to say, oh, I want them to succeed. And even better, for you to say, I want to be like that. I want to be the superhero. I think that's why Spider-Man's so appealing to so many adolescent boys because they all know what it's like to be picked on and they all wish that they could just have superhero strength just to beat people up batman's right be yourself but if you can be batman be batman as the saying goes i sympathize i i have an attachment to that hero i want to be like that hero the woman in pride and prejudice I don't want to be like her, but I know a lot of ladies who do. How does that happen? It is not by accident. Every time you find yourself sympathizing with the hero or attaching or saying, I want to be like that, it is by precise design of the writers and directors. How do they do it? There are literary devices Sympathy, authority, likability, a romantic connection, an adventure, a hero quest, or humor. These are all literary devices that get you to connect with the hero. Think of this. If I wanted you to connect and pull for a lying, cheating thief... In Pirates of the Caribbean, what would I do with that character? Make him funny. Humor. What else? Johnny Depp. 
right? And you're pulling for that guy. But really, he's not super heroic. But why is it we want him to live? We want him to succeed, even though he's a lying, cheating thief. Well, because these other literary devices kind of trump that. He's running for his life, so we're sympathizing. He's Captain Jack, so he has authority, right? And he makes you know, I'm Captain Jack. He's likable. He's funny. All of these things. I don't personally don't have a romantic connection with him, but uh, maybe some do. There's an adventure there, but the adventure connects with me of eluding the authorities that are bad people. All of these are powerful devices to get us to sympathize with the hero. Here's a quiz. What do all these characters have in common? What do they have in common? I didn't hear it. Uh, Yeah, they're heroes. Okay, they're protagonists, good. Yep. In some, some respects, for some of them. Not all of them, though. Yeah. They are fictitious, but in their fictitious makeup, what have we made them all to share in common? They are. But a hero overcomes odds. What have they overcome? What's that? What broke them? Before that. What are their family issues? They're all orphans. Why? Exactly right. It's a sympathy plot. We're pulling for them. Bad things happen to them. I want to overcome like they do. I, I dare you to find, and I ask a kid this, I said, I want you to find a superhero that's not an orphan. And all they could come up with was Mr. Incredible. But I don't know enough about his backstory to know if he's an orphan or not. Can you think of any, John? That hasn't lost at least one parent? Think about that tonight. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, I don't know if there's a backstory enough for you to know that, but does he? Okay. So, what creates sympathy for him? Okay. All right. The person that trained who? Of the who, okay. His kind of, his mentor, right? His, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, 
and so just, I don't want you to watch movies the same way after the seminar. I want you to think, ah, oh, I see what's going on here. <clears throat> there are other ways to, to garner sympathy for the hero. Uh, one of them is to make the hero technologically deficient. Think Rocky versus Drago. So Rocky's out there in the Russian snow chopping wood, and Drago's on the treadmill getting injections. Make the hero technologically deficient. Another one that is pretty famous is give the hero a dog. Give the hero a dog. And then kill the dog. Now, what's interesting is it doesn't work the same for cats. Usually the villains have cats. I don't want you to watch a movie the same. Yes. Yeah, so think of this guy. He is the most annoying person on the planet. But why do we like him? Why do we pull for him to get the girl at the end of the movie? Why is it that we don't sympathize with the psychiatrist? Yes, exactly why. It's such a brilliant piece of filmmaking. It totally reverses what should be right and good. And, and at the end of the day, you're pulling for Bob on the sailboat, and the psychiatrist has gone stark raving mad and lost his own family. And he gets his sister, right? The psychiatrist's sister. Okay, so, yes, how do we pull for that guy, Bob, who, if he were in your life, would drive you stark raving mad? But on the screen, we're like, oh, yeah, Bob's the best. What what are the devices? Go back to the devices. Humor. There's a likability about him, right? There's an innocence about him. Naivete. Adventure. He's an adventurer, right? He's teaching the kid to dive. Yeah. All that stuff. He's on the sailboat. He's just... There's it's humor and likability there where the psychiatrist is kind of a curmudgeon and, and we don't like that guy. And and so, yeah, arrogant. So and those of you who are artists and writers, you should just master this. Listen, this is what Paul does when he speaks to the Athenians. He enters their story. He says, oh, I see all these statues around here. I see that you're very religious. He starts identifying with their story. And then he changes it. He says, this one is to the unknown God. And then he tells it back to them. I want to tell you who this God is. It's, I'm not saying that this is necessarily bad. I'm simply wanting you to be aware of it. So that when it is used for bad, you can point it out. Do you understand what I'm saying? Did I write what about Bob on here somewhere? Okay, yeah. Good. Let's look at this. These are advertisements for alcohol. Now, again, think of your flight envelope and think of how your body responds to taking in alcohol. Right? At extreme levels, it's vomiting and passing out, which is a clue. It's probably not what your body was meant for. Right, I have a general rule of thumb in my life. Uh, don't put anything in my body that can run in my car. 
and that's worked for me pretty well so far. And I don't drink alcohol, uh, mainly because I don't, I don't have time to acquire taste for things. Alcohol doesn't taste good to me. But you could say the same thing for the cigarette industry. Anything that is antithetical to healthy living, I have to sell you not on how good it is for you, but on how you fit into the story of it. I have to tell you a story. And I have to say, if you want to be the hero, cool, beautiful, in the good club, if you want to be the life of the party, then this is for you. Now, who doesn't want to be those things? Right, but as an advertiser, I have to tap into your natural desires to be those things and then pair my product with that. And alcohol is a great example of that. So we see the top left here. Time flies when you're having... How do you complete that sentence? Time flies when you're having fun. No, no, no. A Bud Light. Who doesn't want to be fun? I want to be fun. Well, here you go. This product is for you. Basically, you're a dud loser. No fun to be around, but I can cure that. Drink this. And I tell kids all the time, alcohol is not a life enhancement tool. (laughs) It makes things worse. This one is hilarious to me and sad at the same time. I don't know who that guy is, but it says here, charisma. You can't buy it. You can't make it. And you sure can't fake it. Okay, hold on a sec. Aren't you selling something based on this ad? In other words, you can't buy it unless it's Heineken. Then we'll sell it to you. You see, in each brand of alcohol, trades on a certain pursuit for certain kind of people. Same thing with cigarettes. When Virginia Slims came out, who were they targeting? Women. Right. You want to be, they identify with something that you sympathize with, something that you want to become. Who's this guy? The most what? Interesting man in the world. I want to be interesting. We'll drink that. Really? Alcohol doesn't make you more interesting. It makes you more of an idiot. Look at being boring is a choice. Don't. Yeah, well. Say again. Exactly right. And how did he learn to do that? By drinking that. Stay thirsty. That's right. What is that? That's the quest. Stay thirsty. It's the hero quest. Can't get a girl? Drink this. You can have her. Now here's what I don't like about this. Remember, art is ideas and emotion captured in form. All of those ideas are lies. Every single one of them is telling this generation lies that if you want to be beautiful, if you want to be fascinating, if you want to be interesting, if you want to be the hero, drink this. And Jesus said, I made you beautiful. You can be a hero in the kingdom. You can make an eternal difference with your life. You can be all of those things legitimately. But we've made alcohol use so much of the culture that says in order for you to be these things, this is what you have to do, and it's all a lie. And I don't want to tell that story with my influence. So wherever I go, 
even if they serve alcohol, I won't have alcohol because I don't want to use my Christian influence to tell people lies. I don't want to do it. I work with too many kids that are struggling with their identity already and these advertisers are playing on that. And they're... I think it's a moral weakness. And I think they don't understand this. And I think it's also a selfishness that says, I'm in this for me, not for other people. See, for me as a Christian leader, I make decisions not based on just what I want to do, but based on the good of those that are following me. Paul said, I die to myself, and I become all things to all men so that I can win some. It wasn't about him. It was about other people at some point. And in the Christian world, you're born again as a baby. There's a lot of stuff that goes to you and for you to help you grow like a baby. But then there should be a Christian adolescence that happens that now it's not just about to you, for you, but it is through you, for others. And so many Christians are stuck in that adolescent state where they still think it's all about them. And what they realize is that their Christian walk will be stunted at that point because they're not serving others with their life. Everything that is healthy, alive, and mature produces more than it consumes. And there's a lot of Christians that still are looking to consume, 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 but not produce anything for the kingdom. They haven't gone through that adolescence. And when I go through that adulthood, there are things I do as an adult that are for the benefit of my kids, not for me. Right? Paul says, hey, I might have freedom to eat meat, but if I'm around people who that's going to cause them to stumble, I won't have meat. And what is it about that Christians don't understand? It's not that they don't understand it. It's just they're saying, well, I'm not going to sacrifice my freedom for those people. It's selfish in my opinion. And it's a misunderstanding of what the culture is telling. This is not the New Testament Hebraic culture. There's a different, highly addictive culture that we live in that is imbibing these stories of identity that these marketers are telling them. And I'm not big enough to change it, but... In my world, I don't have to participate in it. Does that answer your question? That's my opinion on it. (laughs) In my first house, I wanted a lawn. had real sandy soil. And so I'm listening to this guy. I think his name is Baker on the radio. Jerry Baker, some, some gardening guru. And he says, you want a lawn? I got the formula for you. Dish soap, tobacco juice, beer. He had a few other things in there. I thought, I can do that. Put it in your hose and sprayer, spray it on your lawn. It feeds the lawn, kills the bugs. Boom, you got it. It was awesome. So I go to the store, and I find, I'm not an alcohol buyer, but I find the cheapest 40-ounce bottle of beer I can get, bring it home, bring all my stuff, and my wife comes home. She sees the 40-ouncer on the table. She says, what? What's this? I said, honey, we're going to have the best lawn. It's going to be great. She said, uh, no, you uh, don't buy that. I said, honey, I'm not drinking it. She said, I don't want that in my house. She was raised by a, her, her grandfather was an alcoholic, died young. She said, we live in a small town. Anybody could have saw you buy that. They wouldn't understand. Oh, it must be for Pastor Kerry's lawn. That's not the connection they're going to make. Anyway, she gives me multiple reasons. You know why I 
don't do that anymore because it causes my wife emotional distress. It's not that I don't have the moral authority to buy beer. I'm free to do it. It doesn't hurt my conscience to feed alcohol to my lawn. But it bothers her. And so the scriptures say, if it causes my brother or sister to stumble, I'm not going to do it. And I wish that we would live to that level of kindness and caring. Paul says, if I don't act that way, I'm not acting in love. Love should be the rule. And so even at my house, you know, the lawn doesn't drink. So... We talked about that. Hayes Code, we talked about. Okay, now let's talk about these lies. One way the media lies to us is a false vision of the good life. Bottom of page nine. Anybody recognize the guy on the left? The Marlboro Man. Okay, remember, if I'm a marketer and my product is killing you and your initial response to it is convulsive coughing. I have to get around that somehow. And one of the ways to do that is to get you to buy into a story that will get you to live outside your envelope. It's got to be a compelling story. So I'm going to create an image that gets you to sympathize with that person that says, I want to be like that. And in the Marlboro Man, what what are they appealing? What's the device there? What's that? A lariat. So what, what is he communicating with that image? What does that image communicate to people that says, I want to be like that guy? Yeah, he's tough. Cowboy. <laughs> there you go. Right. He's the good guy. That white hat is not by accident. Nothing in that picture is by accident. They just don't say, hey, find a cowboy. Oh, he'll do. No, no, everything's perfectly placed. So he's given you a picture of the good life. He's tapping into what we want to be as men. Marlboro is not known as a female cigarette. Now, here's the truth. This guy died of lung cancer in 1992. At age 51, after 25 years of smoking. His modeling job with Marlboro was followed by an anti-smoking campaign that lasted until his death. Here's the quote. I've spent the last month of my life in an incubator, and I'm telling you, it's not worth it, McLaren told the Los Angeles Times. After he died, a week later, his mother Louise told the Times that his last words were, take care of the children, tobacco will kill you, I'm living proof of it. That did not make the ad. It's a false picture of the good life. The most dangerous thing in the world is a lie you believe is true. It gets you to live outside the envelope. Are we having fun yet? That's the, okay. I've been to a lot of parties with alcohol. They didn't end fun. Now there was one Marlboro man who was just a model, but he never smoked or drank. They had multiple Marlboro men, and they had one that never smoked. He was just the model. He lived to 88. (laughs) 
and he inspired many people uh, with a false vision of the good life. So he was lying. He wasn't even buying into his own product. People were dying young, and he was living to 88. So that's one way that we can be lied to, a false vision of the good life. Another way, and this is kind of where we're going to land the plane here tonight, is to disconnect the aesthetic from the message from the, the message it's trying to convey. So an aesthetic. The aesthetic are the... In music, it's often the rhythm, the harmony, the melody, the tonal quality of the instruments that are being used, and then there's the lyrical content. Right, so a song will often have lyrical content with a message, but it also is communicating to you through the aesthetic content of the song. Tonal qualities, the uh, instruments used, and the rhythm, the harmony, melody. Do you understand that? So in a movie, there's the dialogue, but then the aesthetic elements are the scenery, the costumes, the music, all the other stuff that kind of wraps that dialogue. And it can be confusing if those two don't match. And it can be very deceptive. So let's, let's go with a couple experiments, just a couple songs here. So we're going to go with the first one. Everybody close your eyes. And all I want you to do is listen to this song, and I want you to tell me the emotions that this song evokes. I'm only going to play just the intro. Go ahead. What are the emotions? Happy. What else? Victory. Excitement. Happy. Victory. Excitement. What's the song? What is it? Hungry heart. Yeah, Bruce Springsteen, everybody has a hungry heart. So here's the intro. Happy, excitement, victory. Here's the first lyric. I had a wife and kids in Baltimore, Jack. I went out for a ride and I never went back. Should we be happy, excited, and victorious about that? Right? What's he doing? He's selling you a false vision of the good life to leave your wife and kids. And the way it's sold is that the aesthetic doesn't match the lyric. Happy! Victory, freedom. Really? For the wife and kids? What is she thinking? What's the kid thinking? You've been in ministry long enough. You've dealt with kids who thought, I don't don't know if my parents love me because they left. And it cuts to the core of who they are as people. Am I worth anything? Did I cause it? Yeah, all the pain that happens, that song should be in a minor key. And it should be sad music. Why? Because it's a sad story. What's his reasoning for doing what he did? I got a hungry heart. My heart's hungry. Therefore, I'm justified in doing this. No, that's a recipe for living outside the envelope. 
Listen, your sin nature is suicidal. It wants to kill you. And it's homicidal. It wants to take others with you. Paul said, if you live to the spirit, you're going to live. If you sow to the flesh, you're going to die. Simple as that. All right, song number two. Here's another example. Go ahead, close your eyes. Every head bowed. Yeah, go ahead. Tell me the emotion. What is it? What do you feel? Okay. Comic. Suspense. Fun. Good. Comic. Fun. What's the song? Yeah, what's it about? A school shooting. Well, after a parent shooting. Kills his parent, he goes and shoots up a school. Should that be happy and comic? It's one of the most catchy bass lines ever created. It is a toe tapper. But the lyrical content does not match the aesthetic content. It's one way that we can be deceived into a false vision of the good life. You see that? Okay, so Christians aren't immune to this. Let's do this one here. Go ahead and... We're going to do some lyrics on this one. I like it already. They rush on the city, they run on the wall. Great is the army that carries out its word. They rush on the city. song how many know this song what's it about well first of all what emotions are evoked yeah excitement triumph what is it a fight a victorious fight we're triumphing Blow the trumpet in Zion. God has given us the victory. Now, what's the scriptural context? Yes, exactly. It's not the army. We're not the army of the Lord moving out in victory. Blow the trumpet in Zion. We should be weeping and wailing and gnashing our teeth and tearing our clothes because God's judgment is coming with an army of locusts. And for years we sang this in the church. Everybody's dancing, clapping. Yeah, trumpet players are like, finally a song for me. Yeah, and they're playing. It's just awesome. But really the, the, the context is completely opposite of that. If you read it in the scriptures, where they pulled the song from. Yeah, they're waving. I mean, it was just victory. Yeah, but we're victorious. No, no, no. You're wretched. And you need to be on your face ripping your clothes because God is judging your nation. Okay. 
So if you're a Christian artist, match the aesthetic with the content, with the message, and then it won't be confusing for people. And you won't lead a whole generation into thinking just dumb things about the Bible that aren't true. So we've covered a lot of ground tonight, and you have your brains are full and overflowing and ready to explode. But what I want to do is I just want to close in prayer because I want to release you into your work and your ministries because there's a great fight that is going on there. It's a battle for the hearts and minds of people and for this generation, and God has placed you in very strategic places to accomplish that. And my job today is just to ratchet up your level of equipping so that you can go out and, uh, and make a difference. Can I pray for you? Lord, I thank you for these heroes that have sat through this and learned what they could and processed. And, and God, I do pray that just a mantle of truth out of their life would rise up. So many different gift sets, so many different spheres of influence, but Lord, you know exactly you have them right where you want them to be. And I pray, God, you would elevate their influence, that their lives would grow because of the truths that they have learned and they will be able to share and impart truth that sets people free in the hearts and minds and the souls of people in their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Thank you.